The talk this evening is on approaches to meditation. The path of meditation is essentially concerned with the inner freedom of the individual. But there are many different ways of approaching that path. There are also many different ideas and concepts of what freedom is. Certainly one approach to meditation and to inner freedom is from the perspective of a very personal point of view. The other approach, which is vastly different, is from the perspective of the non-personal. The major difference that exists between these two approaches to meditation is one that vastly influences the depth and degree of inner freedom that we come to know. There is an old Zen story which illustrates very clearly the difference between those two approaches to meditation. It's the story of Huaineng, who was an illiterate, poor peasant, who was accepted into a monastery for training. But because he was very poor and a peasant and had little to commend him, he was rather assigned to the back areas of the kitchen and assigned the most menial tasks of preparing the meals and preparing the rice, etc. And there came a time in the temple when the patriarch was nearing the end of his life and the question of succession arose of who was to be the next teacher in the temple. And the patriarch said that the succession would be decided on the basis of the monks writing a verse upon the wall of the temple, which would illustrate their understanding, their insight. There was one monk in the temple who had been there the longest, had the longest history. And most of the other monks, of course, thought that he would most naturally assume the succession and so didn't even bother to compete. And that monk, who was the one with the most years of practice under his belt, as they say, (laughs) wrote upon the wall of the temple his verse. And he wrote that the body is a Bodhi tree and the mind a mirror bright. And carefully we watch them hour by hour and let no dust alight. And the other monks in the temple, when they saw that, of course, thought that was just a remarkable piece of wisdom. And they lit incense before it and assumed that everything, the whole business was really finalized. And the next night, Wei Neng took a friend to the wall with him, not knowing how to write, and had him write his verse upon the wall. And he wrote... (coughs) There is no Bodhi tree, nor is there mirror bright. Buddha nature shines clear and pure, so where can dust alight? (laughs) And when the patriarch, of course, awoke in the morning and saw that, it was obvious that Hui Neng was the one who had clearly illustrated true depth of understanding. The difference between those two verses 
is one which very much illustrates the difference between a personal approach to meditation and to freedom and an approach which comes from the perspective of the non-personal. It is a difference which needs to be understood if we are to penetrate to the essence of Dharma, if we are to abide in true inner freedom. The personal approach to meditation can certainly take one to a certain level of understanding, to a certain degree of detachment and equanimity, and a certain definite degree of spaciousness within the mind. But the insight which is liberating, the understanding which is truly freeing, is the insight into the utter emptiness and insubstantiality of all notions and belief in I. A person who begins on the path of meditation often begins with a notion of a very substantial and real sense of I which hasn't been questioned. There's often a strongly ingrained belief system in the reality of I and an equally strongly ingrained belief system in all of the attributes of I and the reality of them. What I am as an individual revolves essentially around my body, my mind, my personality, my conditioning. All of this is what makes me a person, an individual, separate and somewhat different from other individuals that we meet. The sense of I in our lives, the sense of self, is essentially experienced in two different ways. In one way, it is felt as being the experiencer. Different experiences, different situations, different impressions are happening to me. Some of them are chosen and some of them are thrust upon me. In that position of being the experiencer, the sense of I, the sense of self, assumes different roles. It assumes the role of the victim, it assumes the role of the meditator, it assumes the role of the sufferer, the receiver of impressions. The other way that the sense of self is experienced is as being the initiator of experiences. Instead of things happening to me, I make things happen in life. And different roles are assumed. The doer, the thinker, the chooser, a whole variety of different roles. In either position, a very personal world is created with a very personal way of seeing, a very personal way of perceiving and relating. At the, at the center of that personal world is I. 
there's a strong sense of there being a center in it, either that makes things happen or that has things happen to it. And that center tends to be believed in and subscribed to. When suffering or pain takes place, it's very much my suffering, my pain, my conflict. When actions are initiated, they're very much my actions, and therefore the effects of those actions are equally mine. We say that I have problems, I have aspirations, I have conflicts, I have difficulties. That center that exists is the root source of division and conflict. That center that exists is the primary obstacle to freedom. It's not to say that I in itself is in any way an obstacle to freedom, in any way prevents us from being free. Because the sense of I, if it's seen at all clearly, if it's questioned at all clearly, is seen to be quite empty and insubstantial. It's not the I, the notion of I, which is a barrier. What is the obstacle is the belief system. What is the obstacle, what prevents system, is the belief system which is subscribed to, which makes that center a reality. I want to look at the way in which that belief system operates in relationship to meditation. The way in which the center influences our participation in meditation. Because unless that is understood, meditation becomes simply another field of experience which supports and enhances the belief in self. And so therefore meditation also becomes another field of experience which perpetuates bondage. The function of meditation, the various practices we do, is to shine an increased amount of light inwardly. In the light of awareness, in the light of attention, the contents and movements of the mind are seen more and more clearly. If there hasn't been a deep questioning a deep inquiry into the center of self, then those contents and movements which are seen are also seen in a particular kind of relationship, in that we see ourselves as being the owner of them. That they are my contents and my tendencies, my patterns, my reactions. From the viewpoint of the owner of those tendencies, there also comes the notion of needing to modify and change those tendencies. Because we believe the tendencies to be a personal description, then we also believe in the need to change them. 
because they are seen essentially as being weaknesses or inadequacies or obstacles which limit us and prevent us from being free. With that also comes the notion that we will become free by making ourselves perfect and that freedom is dependent on making ourselves perfect. And as long as we see freedom as being dependent on making ourselves perfect, there will, of course, also be a whole variety of other notions and patterns that arise with that. There'll be the notions of the need to make progress, the need to attain, the need to success, to succeed, and that freedom will be achieved essentially by managing to work on things and to work out things. These notions belong to the path of self-improvement. They don't have any place or any relevance to the path of freedom. In the path of self-improvement, the center of the self assumes the role of the meditator, the doer, who is going to work on things and resolve things. Now it strikes me that that is a stage of meditation that all of us go through at some time. That all of us go through that particular stage of feeling that we do need to work on this whole variety of tendencies and patterns. But unless that stage is questioned, unless that notion is questioned, that stage becomes a rut. And we become lost, essentially, in personality analysis and lost in notions of improving ourselves and making ourselves better. If we keep looking at the presence of things, if we keep looking at the contents of things, the contents of the mind, the repetition of patterns, the repetition of tendencies, what happens is that those contents and patterns and tendencies become increasingly exaggerated in importance. As we watch ourselves, we see the movement of an endless variety of mental phenomena. We see the arising of greed, of anger, of pettiness. We see the arising of, of defensiveness, of narrowness, of clinging. And it's so easy through our, perhaps our guilt conditioning to focus essentially on the negative and to focus essentially on the presence of things. When there is identification or clinging to those contents and tendencies, then of course those contents are seen as being barriers. And that to get to freedom, which exists as something quite separate in the future, then we must achieve this ideal person who's more accepting, more giving, more loving, more caring, more understanding, more selfless, 
nicer, better, purer, etc., etc., etc. All of that is an expression of our belief as being the owner of the contents of our minds and the owner of our patterns and tendencies. All of that is an expression of our personal clinging and identification with the contents of the mind. The changes that can be made within ourselves are endless. And the process of modification is an ongoing one as long as it is not questioned. (coughs) Through that process of change, we create, actually create, our own striving. We create our own rejections of ourselves and all of the conflicts that come with that. We create our judgments of ourselves and all of their conflicts. We create the pursuit of an ideal which is separate and all of the conflicts which are inherent in that. Instead of freeing ourselves from bondage, we also create ever more bondage. Instead of freeing ourselves from suffering, that path actually is one that induces suffering. Instead of freeing ourselves from confusion, we become more confused. We may be able to say that through our meditation that we have changed for the better. We may realistically be able to say that. We may want to do a comparative process between the past and the present so we don't go around stealing things from the corner store anymore. We don't go around kicking dogs anymore. A lot nicer people than we used to be. And on a more subtle level, we may have also got rid of some burdensome qualities of mind. The problem is that the owner will always find something more which needs to be changed. The owner will always find just one more thing that still bears the marks of imperfection. And freedom continues to be seen as something separate which we are going to attain and which we are going to achieve. And as long as freedom is seen as being some kind of separate state or experience, then signs in our practice become very important I find increasingly in retreats people are very worried about signs. Are they doing well or are they doing badly? A hint from the teachers perhaps that they're doing quite well, some sort of reassurance that things are going as they should be, that they're doing better than others perhaps, certainly hopefully not worse than others. (laughs) And we have certain experiences that come up And you know what it's like. I mean, you you sit, you know, and you have an hour's quiet time. And it becomes such a sign of progress, such a sign of breakthrough, such a sign of depth. And immediately the mind begins to make its plans about its three-month retreats and its trips to the east for its retreats until we come into the next sitting 
refine the old tendencies, the old patterns coming up, and immediately the sort of self-condemnation that comes with this, oh, this is a sign of failure, this is a sign I'm regressing, that more work needs to be done, that something else needs to be worked on. Surely not seeing that as long as we judge ourselves by experience, then we are always bound to progress in regression. That you simply can't have progress without regression in meditation. That the two, are all, the two notions are always together. And there'll never be that kind of reassurance that comes that says, yes, I'm going deeper, 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 or higher, 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 whichever way you think of yourself as going. <laughs> <laughs> Some see themselves as going deep, some see themselves as going high. Supposedly, there's a meeting place somewhere <laughs> which is called freedom. What is taking place in all of that is an endeavor to modify the self. What's not taking place is a questioning the reality of the center of self. On the path of self-improvement, certain changes will take place. If we watch ourselves again and again, if we develop an attention increasingly, there certainly will be in that the effect of more detachment, more space, more equanimity. There will be a lessening of reactions, and in that, certain tendencies and the impact of them will become minimized. There will be certain understandings, and through that there comes about more self-acceptance, less projection, less distortion. But even with all of that, there can still be a very strong center which is believed in and subscribed to. The meditator becomes refined. The meditator becomes much more subtle. And through having access to a variety of meditation experiences, doesn't appear as gross or as obvious as it may have done, the center may have done, in other roles and other guises. But there still can be a very strongly ingrained belief in the center as being real and substantial. And everything still operates from the basis of that center. I do and I experience. I have been and I will become. The transition from a personal approach to meditation to the non-personal perspective is one that comes through questioning the center, through questioning who the experiencer is, through questioning who is seeking for freedom and who will be enhanced by it. Those questions, that kind of inquiry, takes us always back to questioning the center. And there can be the insight which is liberating. 
The Buddha expressed the non-personal approach, non-personal approach to meditation in a verse very clearly. He said, mere suffering exists, no sufferer is there. The deeds are, but the doer of the deeds is not. Freedom is, but not the person who enters it. And the path is, but no traveler on it is seen. We cannot deny that there is suffering in life but there is pain in life. The suffering that comes through the body, the suffering that comes through change, through loss, through separation, through death. But how much suffering exists unnecessarily? How much suffering exists because the sufferer clings to experience and make suffering into a personal reality. How much suffering exists because the center of the sufferer exists. See how much suffering does exist in our lives because we do define ourselves by the contents and tendencies that arise within us. At what point do we assume the identities we carry which are so often so burdensome? We say, I am greedy, I am angry, I am inadequate, I am negative. At what point do we become that? At what point does that become a reality for us? Is that the point of clinging, surely? Is that the point of identification that we assume those identities which then become our suffering, our pain, our burden? Surely it's at the point of clinging that makes a passing show of experience into a personal experience which is happening to me. We may say, well, things do come up. Problems, difficulties, conflicts do come up. And I need to work on them. I need to resolve them. And it may be true that there is value and relevance in isolating patterns which repeat themselves again and again, particularly as they exist in relationship to the outer world. Self-consciousness, problems in relationship, um, difficulties in communication, these problems that exist between me and the outer world. There can be value in giving them attention and in working in different ways with them. But it would be a mistake to feel or to believe that we are going to work out our tendencies or erase the impressions and the conditioning from the past. It's not a question of working anything out or erasing anything, but rather seeing that patterns and tendencies and conditioning are neutralized in awareness. That patterns and tendencies fall away when there is a cessation of clinging. When there is a cessation of clinging, they cease to be mine, they cease to have any power whatsoever. 
not a question of focusing always on the contents or the presence of tendencies, but changing the relationship to them. Not changing the contents, but changing the relationship to awareness through seeing. A person of insight must see that it is not the contents which need to be constantly focused upon, that it's not the contents which need to be given this obsessive attention. Rather, on a deeper level of seeing, it is the processes which need to be understood. The process through which we construct our belief systems, the process of identification, the processes of reaction, the process of clinging. You take any time of suffering or conflict in your lives, you see it is an effect which is constructed. Particular factors, particular causes come about. There's identification, there's clinging, there's a construction and there's an effect. If we can see and understand the constructing process, if we can truly understand that, then we also free ourselves from the effects. There is freedom from the effects. The effects simply don't come about if the constructions don't come about. And the constructions don't come about if we understand the process clearly, clearly within us. A great deal is spoken about actionlessness in meditation, which is often meant that we sit around and do nothing all day. But actionlessness doesn't mean apathy or indifference. Neither does it mean inaction. Rather, actionlessness is a way of seeing, a way of being a way of doing, which is free from the marks of the doer, the center of the doer. The doer always separates attainment from itself. The doer, the center of the doer, is always bound to action and is there always bound to effects. It is the center of the doer which clings to experiences and creates suffering. We think at times in our lives that we have freedom in action. We delude ourselves into thinking that we have freedom of choice. But how many of the actions we initiate are nothing more than reactions? We feel that we have freedom of choice if we have the freedom to tell someone to get lost or if we have the, the freedom to decide what we're going to do with our lives. But how many of our actions are free from reaction? How many of our actions are free from the marks of conditioning? And when there is the marks of conditioning, when action comes from the center of the doer, there's always simply a process of cause and effect and the action is always conditioned.
and in the condition there is actually little freedom. It is when the center of the doer is dissolved that we can understand what it means and says the deeds are but no doer of the deeds is there. When the center of the doer is dissolved through questioning, through seeing, there is action which is free from reaction. There is action which is free from the marks of conditioning. There is action which comes from no center which is a response. And in that freedom from the marks of conditioning and freedom from the center of the doer, there is actionlessness. There is also, in that, the end of karma. One is simply not bound to cause and effect. And one understands that it is when there is freedom in action. The Buddha said, Nirvana is, but not the person who enters it. The center of I assumes the role of the meditator, and in that, assumes also the notion that I am going to become free at some point in time, through my actions and through my efforts, I will become free or liberated at some point. And yet, the belief in self, the belief in the center, is also the belief in separation. And in that, the seeker is born. But what is sought for will always be separate from the seeker. There will always be that separation. And the seeker simply cannot become free. I simply cannot ever become free. Nirvana is so often seen as being some kind of experience which we're going to gain. But surely we see that where there is experience, that there is always also the experiencer. That there is, where there is experience, there is also time, because there is also beginning and ending. And to me, any notions of a liberation, which is an experience, are deluded. Any notions of liberation as an experience, which we dip into at some point, and then go back into ignorance and delusion, must surely be false. Because freedom can't be that relative. Insight into truth is liberating, and there is in that no loss of liberation. It's only I who can lose things. It's also only I who can gain things. And to follow that path means that we may be seeking the most illustrious of experiences, but there will still be ignorance because there will still be the center of self. 
no matter how deep or how enlightening or how transcendental the experience was, it also simply was. Past tense. And there's no freedom, simply no freedom in experience. center of I, whatever role it assumes, exists always in relationship to objects, is supported by objects. It's always I see, I think, I will do, I am, or I will become. That seeing, that constant watching, focusing upon objects, does bring equanimity, which when we do in certain practices of meditation, we focus upon objects again and again and again, and the mind becomes more balanced. There is in that the ability to see things as they are. An ability to see things as they are, free from projection, free from distortion, free from likes and dislikes, is a step to just seeing. A seeing which embraces both subject and object. A scene in which there is understanding that when the subject is not grasped hold of, that the world of objects falls away. When the world of objects is not grasped hold of, the subject equally falls away. And that when there is no grasping, there is cessation of the center. And in the cessation of the center, there is the cessation of a world of objects. That seeing allows one to see what was meant when it says that path is, but no traveler on it is seen. That the meditation practices we engage in have their validity, their necessity, and their relevance. They don't become an object of bondage or limitation when they are not grasped hold of. They can fulfill their objective, their potential, when no undue significance is given to the meditator and also no attachment to the meditation. And the path is comes a point when the path ceases to be, when there ceases to be a path, when there is just seeing without any effort or intention, without any idea of doing anything with that seeing, of changing anything, getting rid of anything or gaining anything. In that depth of seeing, truth touches you. A liberated insight touches you. Not something that can be reached or gained, but that touches. And in that there is freedom. May all beings be free from delusion.
May all beings be free from clinging. May all beings abide in inner freedom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.